Well, welcome everyone. I hope this has been already a meaningful time of worship for you. Let me begin by asking you a, a personal question. What do you hunger for? If I could see into your soul, if I could get a glimpse into what drives you day after day, what is that thing that your soul craves? What do you really long for deep inside? Jesus made an amazing statement. It's found in Matthew's gospel, chapter five, verse six. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus said, a truly blessed life comes when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, as we're using that word blessed, let me remind you of our working definition of the truly blessed life. This is the definition we're using. The blessed life is a profoundly satisfying life of flourishing regardless of external circumstances. That word translated blessed or blessed, depending on how you pronounce it, is makarios in Greek. It, it, it has all these connotations of contentment, deep satisfaction, indeed, happiness. And that's why we're calling this whole series The Pursuit of Happiness. But make no mistake, it's something that can be real for you regardless of what's going on around you. And Jesus said, you want that life? Is that what you're after? It's gonna come when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, what we're hungry for really, really matters. As many of you know, I grew up on a farm and I had the privilege of seeing all kinds of animals born and the wonder of the birth process is just amazing. But to me, one of the cutest and most precious of all newborn animals is a baby calf. And you watch this cute little calf his mother is licking the calf, and mother and calf are bonding. But literally within minutes of birth, within minutes, this new baby calf is trying to stand up. Now, it's wobbly at first, but that just adds to the cuteness of the whole thing. And he's being driven to stand up and walk because of one thing, hunger, hunger. And within no time, it seems, this little baby calf is nursing and getting that vital first milk from his mother. And that hunger is an indication of health. If you see a baby calf and there seems to be no passion to nurse or get food, something is dramatically wrong because hunger is one of the sure signs of health. And I'm saying to you today that the same is true of the disciple of Jesus. If you show me a person who seems to have little or no hunger at all for the things of God, I'll show you a person where I wonder if there's really spiritual life there because hunger for the things of God is a primal instinct of the true believer. Now notice here, when we talk about hunger Jesus didn't say you can hunger for just anything 
and get that blessed life. It's not a hunger for happiness, for instance. As we've noted in this series, that seems to be what everybody wants, right? I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be happy, and so that's what we clamor for. Everything we do pretty much in life is designed for our happiness. But Jesus never promised happiness to those who strive for happiness. In fact, I want to go a step further. The most unhappy people I've ever met seem to be those who've made happiness their number one goal. Nowhere in the Bible do you see happiness as this thing that we ought to really go after. Happiness is a byproduct of something else. And whenever in our lives we put happiness ahead of righteousness, then we are doomed to unhappiness. So I hope we're clear about that. Although we're calling this series The Pursuit of Happiness, nowhere in Scripture are we told to pursue happiness. We're told many other things we're to pursue, and happiness tends to show up as a byproduct when we pursue those things. Now, with that said, if we're really going to understand this statement of Jesus today about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we'd better know what he means by righteousness, right? Because definitions are important. And I think you'll agree, if there was ever a stained glass word, a churchy sounding word, righteousness is that word. I mean, wow, that is dripping with churchiness. And so let's just acknowledge up front, the word righteous has a lot of negative baggage. Would you agree in our culture? will say about someone who has their nose up in the air, oh, she thinks she's so righteous. And we say it with a snarl because we despise people like that. Or we'll talk about some guy who is self-righteous. What do we mean by that? We're talking about someone who thinks he's morally superior to other people. And we hate that kind of character in a person. So we've got to try to shed all of the negative baggage today when we talk about this. The word righteous, believe it or not, in the Bible is a wonderful word. And here's what righteousness means. It means the moral character of God. Hey, newsflash, God wants that to show up in you and me. When the Bible talks about us being created in the image of God, the imago Dei, that means that ideally, God's idea was, it's not a physical thing, it's a moral one. God wants us, you, me, to portray and bear and demonstrate his character in the way we live. Wow. God sets the bar high. So he wants us to be kind, not because your mother told you to be kind. No, no. Because if you only do it because your mother said to do it, your mother may tell you other things that aren't right. We're to be kind because God is kind. We're to be loving, not because dad or mom said to or a teacher told us to. No, we're to do it because God is loving. 
We're to be faithful because God is faithful, generous because God is generous, merciful because God is merciful. I hope you get the idea. All moral conduct flows from the very character of God. It has its root, it has its source in God's character. And so this is a profound thought. God's ideal was, look, when people look at you as his people, he wants others to see God's image in you. That's what God wanted. But a funny thing happened in the garden. It was actually pretty tragic. In Genesis chapter three, we see that all of that went south. And the image of God, the imago Dei in human beings was marred irreparably, at least for a season. His moral character in humanity was marred. We were no longer able to display the character of God because the character of God within humans derives from the presence of God within our human experience. And so, after the garden, after the fall, humanity was in trouble. And that's why Paul kind of sums it up. He sums up the situation humans are in in Romans 3 where he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Whoa, nobody righteous? No, not after what happened in Eden. You say, well, I'll be righteous. I'll go to church. I'll do good things. No, you won't. No, you won't. You say, I'll read a self-help book and make myself. No, you won't. You can't. You say, well, I read a book the other day called 10 Ways You Can Be Righteous on Your Own. Oh, it's probably a bestseller but it's bogus. It's all a sham. In fact, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he said, look, if you you think you can make yourself righteous on your own, he says, all our righteous acts, that is, all of our own attempts to be righteous on our own, he says, they're like filthy rags. So according to Scripture, That is the human dilemma, and it is a dire one. But here's where the good news comes in. God saw us in that dilemma, and Jesus came to remedy that. We can't remedy it on our own, but the gospel, this good news, is God's answer to the human dilemma. The gospel is designed to remedy what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. That's why Paul gladly states in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then catch these words, for in the gospel, there's that word again. It just shows up everywhere in the Bible. A righteousness from God. You mean I can't Get it from myself? You mean I can't make it up on my own? No, it's a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Paul says that the very thing that we've become separated from, the righteousness of God, is now restored to us based not on our good deeds and jumping through hoops, Being a good person, going to church, doing a bunch of righteous, no, no, it's by faith in Christ. 
Jesus died so that the righteousness of God could be restored in those who trust in him. You say, but, but Pastor Rex, I thought Jesus died so we could get our ticket punched to heaven. Now hear me closely. Going to heaven is a spectacular consequence of being reconciled to God and having your sins forgiven. But it's not the primary purpose of it. The primary purpose and function of the gospel is to restore that relationship with God that was lost in Eden so we can once again display the moral character of God in human life. In other words, so we could once again give people the right impression of who God is. Oh, I know I'm lingering here. I know I'm asking you to stretch a bit today. I know I'm asking you to put on your theological thinking caps, but we need to linger here for just a few more moments before we get to some, quote, points quickly, because we've got to lay the proper foundation. The way we live really matters. That's why the Apostle John makes such a radical statement in 1 John chapter 3, where he says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now, what would you expect to come after that? Those who have their ticket punched, those who've prayed a little prayer, those who've jumped through the religious hoops. No, no. John strips it down. He says, look, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We read that. We go, John, are you on drugs, man? What do you say? I just wanted my ticket punch. That's all I want. I just wanted my ticket punch so I could breeze through the gates of heaven one day. This sounds like God has something more radical in mind. He actually wants me to change. Jesus said in John 13, by this All people will know that you're my disciples if you have your ticket punched. No, 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 no. If some of my moral character is showing up with you, God is love. And if we love one another, guess what? His moral character is being seen in us. So make no mistake, the solid evidence that one is a Christian, is when God's righteousness, his image is being restored in you. That is God's goal for you and me. By the way, that'll make a difference in everything. That'll make a difference in the way I love my wife and the way I relate to my family. That'll make a difference in the way we parent our children. It'll make a difference in the way we spend our money It'll make a difference in the way we steward our time and use it. It'll make a difference in the way we relate to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. I could go on and on. God wants his character to be seen in us. Just one other passage here. The apostle Peter also gets in on this. And he says in 1 Peter chapter two, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might get our ticket punched to heaven one day? No, you'd think that, listening to a lot of Christians. But he did that. He died on the cross so that we might die to sin, there's that word again, and live to righteousness. 
So I hope you're getting the idea, and I know I'm belaboring this, but that is the consistent message of Scripture. Now, in the balance of our time, and we don't have much, with that as a foundation, I want to make three statements now about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which I think are crucial for us to understand. Statement number one, you are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but you already have it. Say, Pastor, you're speaking in riddles. No, it is a paradox, though. And yes, it does seem contradictory, but it's not. Please listen carefully. The strong message of Scripture is that a person of faith in Jesus already is righteous. Jesus' righteousness has already been given to that person. That's why Jesus could make a statement like in John 6, 35, where he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus, how could you tell us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and then turn right around at the same time and say, whoever comes to me is never gonna be hungry or thirsty? How can both of those statements come from the mouth of Jesus? Here's how. This is so important. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ right now. You've been justified freely in Christ by the grace of God, and you stand righteous at this very moment. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness which of his son, which has now become your righteousness. You are filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ right now. It's already yours, hallelujah. If that doesn't make you wanna dance and get elated, I don't know what will. That is good news, okay? That's why Paul can make such a crazy radical statement in 1 Corinthians chapter one when he says it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become our righteousness. Notice, he says Christ is our righteousness. That's good news. So Jesus is in you. His righteousness has been imputed to you, and that means you're already filled with righteousness. Wow. You said, oh, wait, wait, Pastor, I, I, I don't know if I just haven't had enough coffee yet today. I don't know if you're just not making sense today. I don't know what it is, but, but time out. If I'm already filled with righteousness, why would I need to hunger and thirst for it? Answer. It is already yours positionally in Christ. That is true, but it's also a subjective process. You're already righteous objectively because Jesus' righteousness has been given to you, imputed to you, granted to you, transferred to your account, however you want to put it. That is true objectively, but subjectively, whoo, subjectively, you and I have got a lot of growing to do. And God's gonna keep on carrying on this process of growth and righteousness until one day when we stand face to face before him and the work of sanctification will finally be complete. 
Oh, what we just said is vital, vital for us to understand. So there's the first statement. You're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but you already have it. Here's the second one. It gets even better. The more you're filled with righteousness, the more you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, does that sound contradictory? It's not. It's actually the wonder of the Christian life. Yes, as you walk with Christ, you're going to reach great plateaus of growth, but we must never get stuck there. Yes, we will go from glory to glory, from one level of righteousness to another until each of us appears before God in heaven. What I'm saying to you is that true Christians must never lose the wonder of following Christ. Why? Because there's always more. Some of you are really, really unhappy and kind of bored in life. Some of you are really having a bummer of a season of life right now. And partially, it's because you've lost the wonder of following Christ. Did you know there's so much more? There's more illumination of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. There's more comfort through the hard days of life that he wants to bring to you and me. There's more encouragement from the word and the spirit. And the more we learn about God's wonders, the more we want to learn. I love Psalm 36, verse nine. The psalmist cries out and says, for with you is the fountain of life in your light. We see light. I love that. You give us light. Guess what? We want more light. As we drink from your fountain, we want more. It's like trying to drink the ocean. Eventually, if you could, you would just want more and more and more. By the way, human experience bears this out. If you were to ask me, Pastor, who are the hungriest, who are the thirstiest people for righteousness in the whole congregation, pretty much I would point you to the healthiest saints in the congregation, to the healthiest brothers and sisters who've really been walking with Christ. And man, they have grown and grown and their lives really show his character in so many amazing ways. And they are the hungriest of all because the more they're filled with righteousness, the more they thirst and hunger for more righteousness. But now finally, that third statement as we wrap up. The way to demonstrate and act on your hunger and thirst is to practice the private and corporate spiritual disciplines. That's how you demonstrate it. That's, how, that's what you do when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Oh, I just resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 42 who just cries out from his soul and says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You say, Pastor Rex, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know? I'll tell you one thing I know about you. A truly saved person wants to be close to the heart of God. 
You hunger for that. You hunger to be closer. And we can't give ourselves righteousness on our own, but we can posture ourselves by participating in these means God has given us to do that. You say, well, what are those? They're called spiritual disciplines. And if you want to know more about those, go and, and listen to what we said back in a, a series called Vital Signs back in the spring. But let me just mention a few of them. It's like Bible intake. It's like prayer. It's congregational worship, journaling, service, confession of sin. These are all examples of the kind of spiritual disciplines God has ordained to bring more subjective righteousness into our lives. Now listen, to neglect any of these is like leaving a blessing unclaimed. But now I want to close with this. And if you miss this, I'm afraid you're going to end up going through the motions of religion. And I don't want anybody to go through the motions of religion. So I beg you to listen closely to this last little part. Why we engage in these actions is so important. I got up this morning and I prayed. I went out on a walk to our daughter and son-in-law's dog on a walk. Oliver, boy, he was happy this morning to be out. And I went walking through the neighborhood and I prayed as I walked. And I reflected on scripture and meditated. It's something I do every day, meditate on scripture and pray. Every morning I begin that way. Why do I do that? So I can tell you I do that? That's no good. I do that every day. You can't. You can't keep me out of the box. I'm an, I, I gotta confess, I'm an addict. I, I just, I'm, I'm addicted. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't stay away from it. Because I'm hungry. My flesh, my soul just cries out and yearns for more of God. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm confessing to you that I'm an addict. I just... I want more of God. I want to know more of his truth. I want to know more of the wonder of following him. It's just, it's just who I am. He's just created a hunger in me. I'm not the only one. Many of you would gladly stand up and say, yes, that's the way I feel every day. I want more of God. I think, I think by God's grace, it's, it's one sign, one of spiritual health. But I got to keep asking myself, why am I doing this? And the best motivator of all is an inner appetite for righteousness. If anything besides that is driving you, you are in danger of pseudo-righteousness. Now, let's explain that. Pseudo-righteousness is when you do righteous acts. What are righteous acts? Prayer, Bible study, small group, quiet times, devotions, journalings, acts of service, going to church and worshiping God, all these things we can name, those are righteous acts, but for the wrong reasons. And if anything besides an inner appetite is driving you, you're in danger of that. 
You do them to get credit and honor and applause from people, not because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And by the way, you can read Matthew 6 if you want to get some examples of this. Jesus talks about giving to the needy and announcing it with trumpets. I'm about to give to the needy. Look at me. Well, that, that's not for the needy, and that's not for God. You're doing that to get applause from people. He talked about people who fast, go without food. That's one of those righteous acts. And he said, you look all somber so that your friends will look at you and go, what's wrong with you, man? Man, you look horrible. Oh, yeah, just fasting for the Lord, you know, just going without food. Oh, yeah, just... No, Jesus said, look, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so it will not be obvious to people that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's in heaven. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Why are we doing these acts of righteousness? That is important. Now, let's be clear. Jesus never said there's anything wrong with getting appreciated forgiving or praying or fasting, or for people applauding you for it or admiring your discipline and doing it. There's nothing whatsoever wrong with that. What he said is, if that's your driving motive, then you're in danger of pseudo-righteousness. So let me ask you, are you appetite-driven or applause-driven? The why is important. And when we're applause-driven, our audience subtly changes, subtly changes from heaven to earth, from God to people. And soon we're just going through the motions of religion. And brothers and sisters, I don't know anybody's heart or motives, but I will tell you this. It seems to me that there are millions of people in this country that are going through the motions of religion, and there is nothing deader than going through the motions of religion where it is just a duty, hate it, don't want to do this, have no desire, but it's my duty, I got it. Ah, that is spiritual deadness. We're to engage in these things out of a passion and a hunger for the things of God. So let me close where I started. What are you hungry for? A mark of a genuine follower of Jesus is a hunger for the things of God. And aren't you kind of sick and tired of feeding off the junk food of this world? Everything the world has to offer you will ultimately leave you empty, guilty, and unsatisfied. But when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. That is the promise of Jesus. Father, thank you that you've got us on a journey here together. And Lord, we've looked deep today, a lot of content into what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for anything else. I pray that you would stoke that thirst, stoke that hunger in us, that we would have a passion to feast on the things of God, to engage our lives in those things so that you could build more and more righteousness in us, not for our glory, 
not so anyone would applaud us, but so that your moral character would be seen in our lives and people would get the right impression of who you are. That's our desire, Lord. That's our passion. We give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.